if you would take out your Bible and turn to the book of Philemon in the New Testament. If you're using one of the few Bibles, I'll help you out. It's on page 1000. It's easy to find, but it's, it's a rather small book. In fact, it's the third smallest book in the New Testament. A couple of weeks ago, as we were considering Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, we saw that the Apostle Paul called the church to continue steadfastly in prayer and to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. We don't know why Paul called attention to those two corporate disciplines, the discipline of prayer and the discipline of evangelism. We just know that prayer and evangelism are essential functions of a biblical church, and Paul wanted to, for some reason, exhort the Colossian church to continue to walk in those functions, to continue to walk in those disciplines. But as Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 illustrates, a church is certainly known by its prayer and evangelism, but it's also known by more than just its prayer and evangelism. It's known also by its other functions. We got a glimmer of one of these other functions last week as we studied the ending of Colossians chapter 4 verses 7 to 18. And we noted there a few characteristics that bind Christians together as a community. A deep-seated love for one another. A common effort to labor together for the sake of the gospel. A faithfulness in walking in Christ together and, and holding one another accountable to keep walking in Christ and a future hope in the promises of God. What I wish I had said last week, this is one of the reasons why, kind of upon further reflection, especially after our men's group on Tuesday morning, Adam did a great job kind of tying this together. I would use the word fellowship to describe all of those things. All of those things together, those characteristics we're talking about, point us to the biblical function of fellowship. The followers of Jesus fellowship together. We live together in a fellowship. So like prayer and like evangelism, fellowship is an essential function of the church. Now the reason why I wanted to come back and kind of clarify those comments is because that theme that we looked at last week in Colossians chapter 4 verses 7 to 18, the theme of fellowship, bleeds over into this book that we're going to study over the next couple of weeks, Paul's letter to Philemon. And in many ways, this is a sort of a a natural, logical progression to go from Colossians to Philemon because Philemon is a companion letter to Colossians. Paul wrote the books of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon all about the same time during his first imprisonment in Rome about the year 60 AD. Because of the close proximity of Ephesus and Colossae, Paul sends these letters with Tychicus and Onesimus as they journey on first to Ephesus, then to Colossae, to deliver these letters on behalf of Paul. Philemon lived in Colossae. In fact, we're going to find out in verse 2, as we read it in a moment, that Philemon hosted the church at Colossae in his home. So there's an intimate connection between these two letters, Colossians and Philemon. And the fact that the theme kind of flows from the end of Colossians into Philemon is important, I think. It's a very intimate connection, I think, bears some studies. So we're going to study the book of Philemon over the course of the next couple of weeks. And as, I, as we think about this book, as we study this book, I want us to think more about the corporate discipline of fellowship, biblical fellowship. 
Now, what I want to do today is I want to read the first seven verses. Normally, I'd like to read the whole letter together, at least at one time, because that's how it would have been read in the church. But we're just going to kind of confine ourselves to the verse, first seven verses today, and we'll look at the, the rest of the, the uh, letter next week. So to follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read aloud from the English Standard Version, Paul begins by saying, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, before we actually get into the passage, let me just make a couple of brief notes about this letter. The historical context is rather complex, and we'll unpack it more next week because it really consumes the body of the letter. But it would be helpful to know, at least as we consider this idea of fellowship, look at the first few verses, what Philemon is about. So here's your spoiler alert. You've got a promise you'll come back next week to hear that's the rest of the story. I don't want to ruin the rest of the book for you, but it really will help us understand more what's happening in the first seven verses. Philemon's slave, named Onesimus, had run away from his master. He ended up in Rome. He came in contact with the Apostle Paul, and he was converted to Christ through Paul's ministry, however that happened. Paul is now sending Onesimus, the runaway slave, back to Philemon, his master. And he writes this letter to Philemon, appealing to Philemon, encouraging Philemon to be reconciled to Onesimus and to receive him back into his home. Because remember, again, we saw in Colossians that slaves were part of the home. So they, they, were, they were just as much a part of the home as, say, a, a husband and a wife or, or a parent and a child. This is a home-related matter, and so Paul is encouraging, he is exhorting, he is appealing to Philemon, be reconciled to this slave that has run away, and bring him back, receive him back into your home. Be restored. Now again, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's the main purpose for Paul's writing this letter. However, the key theme that underlies the letter, the foundation for Paul's argument, the argument he's going to make, the motivation for his appeal to Philemon, the reality that he is trying to shape for Philemon and Onesimus and the church at Colossae, the promise of what God intends for his people to be as a community is this idea of Christian fellowship. Our shared responsibility in and through Christ for our mutual encouragement, our mutual edification and for accountability so that we fulfill God's purposes for our lives as we walk together in Christ. So despite its brevity, despite the shortness of this letter, Philemon teaches us much about biblical fellowship. So as we consider this book, this passage, we begin where Paul begins in the first three verses, the introduction to the letter. All Greek and Roman letters begin with some sort of an introduction. And this introduction kind of follows that pattern. Paul is just simply adopting the conventional form of the introduction for a letter. The introduction has two parts. In verses 1 and 2, we see the salutation, and in verse 3, we see Paul's greeting. The salutation of verses 1 and 2 has itself two parts. The first part, verse, the, primary, the, 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 the first part of verse 1, it's a listing of those who are sending the letter, the authors of the letter. 
And in the last part of verse 1 into verse 2, we see the recipients of the letter, those who are receiving the letter. In verse 1, we see that there are two senders, two authors to this letter. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, the one who had been converted to Christ on the road to Damascus. Christ had called him not simply to, uh, to be a Christian, but also to be an apostle. God had saved him for his own purpose, and he had now sent Paul out into the Gentile world, world to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, to declare to them the good news of what Christ had done for them. But we also see that Timothy is mentioned there. Timothy is Paul's chief associate. He would be, if we were looking at this from a, a church perspective, he's probably the, the associate pastor, the executive pastor. He's, he's Paul's right-hand man. In the, the verses 1 and 2, the recipients, Paul lists four recipients of this letter. The, the, the principal recipient is Philemon himself, the, the first one mentioned. In fact, the, the listing of, the, of him as first indicates that it's sort of the emphatic position that this letter is really, it's principally, it's primarily for Philemon. It's clear, beginning in verse 4, that Paul is going to direct his attention particularly, particularly to Philemon. In fact, as you go through the book, one of the things that's interesting is that Paul uses the, the personal pronoun you, right? And the you there is in the singular form. Paul is speaking directly to Philemon. He is speaking only to Philemon. But Paul also identifies three other recipients in verse 2. As, as, as receiving this letter, this letter is also meant for them. We have Apphia listed in verse 2. She's probably Philemon's wife. We have Archippus also in verse 2. Uh, you might remember his name came up last week in Colossians 4, verse 17. Uh, Paul told the Colossians to encourage Archippus to fulfill the ministry that he had received from the Lord. And the word ministry there usually refers to the ministry of, of preaching the word, of, of preaching the gospel, teaching the word of God. It's, it's gospel ministry. So Archippus perhaps had some sort of pastoral function in the Colossian church. And the fact that he's listed here with Philemon and Apphia also may indicate that he may have been their son. And then finally, the last recipient of the letter here, in ver- at the end of verse 2, is the church that meets in Philemon's house. Now, in the first couple of centuries after Pentecost, the church did not meet in church buildings like we do today. Uh, they actually met usually in member homes, especially those of, of wealthier members who had bigger homes to accommodate a larger gathering, uh, wealthier members who could provide hospitality for, for a larger group that had come together for worship. So if Philemon hosts the Colossian church in his home, he must have possessed some wealth. Now, Paul is primarily writing this letter for Philemon, but because he mentions other people, and because he mentions specifically the church that meets in Philemon's house, he intends this letter to be read publicly to the church. Now, what strikes me most about the opening to this letter is how Paul highlights the theme of fellowship. Paul here lays the foundation for his appeal to Philemon to receive back and to be restored, be reconciled to his runaway slave. And the basis for his appeal, the basis for his argument, is this idea of a shared Christian fellowship. Now, how do we see that theme of fellowship bear itself out here in the first couple of verses in this introduction? Well, we see it in several ways. We see it first in the language that Paul uses to describe the relationships among believers. But Paul here indicates that a fellowship, a Christian fellowship, is a family, right? In verse 1, he identifies Timothy as our brother. And in verse 2, he identifies Apphia as our sister. Paul here is identifying family relationships among believers. Not primarily biological family, but spiritual family. 
Christian fellowship happens because we are family. We come into a new relationship with one another through the gospel. The gospel changes our relationship not just to God, but to all the others whom God has saved himself, right? So a new relationship with God means that we'll have new relationships with other people also that God has saved. These new relationships form a new family, a spiritual family, an eternal family. And in fact, the fellowship created by this new family transcends the bonds of earthly family relationships. So there's a a kinship there. There's a a sense of family. Paul uses the metaphor family. He also uses the language of, of solidarity and camaraderie to describe Christian fellowship. Notice that he calls Philemon in verse 1, our beloved fellow worker. Paul, even though he's a thousand miles away from Philemon, even though they, they serve in different contexts, Paul sees himself as a fellow worker with Philemon, or I maybe should say that he sees Philemon as a fellow worker with himself. They're working together for the same goal. They're laboring together for the kingdom of God. They are serving together for the glory of King Jesus. They're on the same team. They're pulling in the same direction. They have sweat together. They have felt the pain of toil together. They have shared heavy burdens together. And they have tasted the sweetness of ministry fruitfulness together. It's the laboring together for the same master on the same mission that forges Christian fellowship. And likewise, Christian fellowship manifests a solidarity and a camaraderie that leads us to labor together for the same master on the same mission. Paul also, we see this language of, uh, of, of solidarity and camaraderie in, in how he describes Archippus in verse 2. He identifies Archippus here as our fellow soldier. I can, I can imagine that Paul sees himself with Archippus, suited up in, in military attire, with their military gear, on the battlefield, engaged in a spiritual combat with the enemy, a heated combat, a fierce combat. Now, guys, if, if some of you may have served in the military, I, I have not, but I hear that those who serve in the military, that the relationships that are built there are some of the closest, strongest, tightest relationships that that they will ever experience, that there is a brotherhood, that there is a camaraderie that comes with serving together in the military. And I guess that's what happens when for four, five, ten, twenty years, you live together and you eat together and you sleep together and you work together and you train together and you wage war together. You're in the heat of battle. You're in the same foxhole. You're fighting the same enemy. You're seeking to preserve each other's life. And I think Paul has this picture in his mind that he and Archippus are in the same trench. They are waging spiritual warfare against the darkness. They are fighting together for the same cause, the cause of the gospel. And it's that soldiering that produces and displays Christian fellowship. So the language here is infused with this idea of fellowship. There's also a a corporate dimension here that that we can't help but see. Fellowship, biblical fellowship. The corporate dimension. You see how many times uh, Paul uses the word our? In three verses, he uses it five times, right? Timothy, our brother. Philemon, our beloved worker. Aphia, our sister. Archippus, our fellow soldier, right? 
And then in verse 3, God, our Father. Paul holds these relationships in common with Philemon, with his family, with the Colossian church. There's a shared participation together of these realities. It's not me or I or my or mine. It is we. It is us. It is our. It's what we hold in common. That corporate dimension appears again when Paul addresses the Colossian church in verse 2, right? To the church that meets in your house. Now, while Philemon is the principal recipient, Paul expects the letter to be read to the entire church. How's that for reading somebody else's mail, right? Imagine you're getting a letter from someone you come up and, or somebody directs, them, directs you to read it before the congregation. There's a corporate sense here that this letter is not just to be read in public, but it's to be shared together in the life of the community. In fact, Paul is going to use the word you, right, in verse 3. That's the plural you. It's the y'all, right, that we're accustomed to here in the South. I'm not a Southerner, but I caught myself this week saying all y'all, Right? That's what happens when you live in southern Georgia for 20 years, right? All y'all. Grace to all y'all. Grace to all of you. Paul is sending a message not just to Philemon, but to the church. Paul intends this letter to be personal, but not private. I don't think that Paul here is intending to put pastoral pressure on Philemon, but he is putting a personal matter in a public forum. He includes the Colossian church as a recipient because Philemon lives and acts in a community. His decision to accept Onesimus or not will have repercussions, not just for his household, but for the rest of the body, for the rest of the church. So Paul addresses the Colossians because he sees them as participants in this situation. They must encourage Philemon, pray for Philemon, work with Philemon, help Philemon, and hold Philemon accountable. That's what fellowship does. Now, as I thought about that, I don't do a lot of whole lot of illustrations because they don't come naturally. I don't like to force them. But I thought of this, and maybe it'll help. Now, I'm going to pick on Sheldon for this. I don't think anybody here works with Sheldon. And I don't imagine that a lot of people know about his work situation. But let's just imagine the situation here at Sheldon's work. Let's imagine he has a co-worker. We call him Bill. Bill is not a Christian. And over the number of years that they've worked together, Bill has just had it out for Sheldon. He has tried to undermine all of the work that Sheldon tries to do. He has tried to poison all of the relationships that, that Sheldon tries to, to create or ha- he has to have at, at his work. He has prevented uh, Sheldon from uh, being uh, seen in a positive light by his uh, administrators and supervisors. He's hindered Sheldon from getting promotions and pay raises and various other kinds of honors. Bill is not a Christian. He hates Sheldon because he is a Christian. He has it out for Sheldon. He will do anything he can to undermine everything that Sheldon does, even to the point maybe of, of even seeing him fired. But then one day, Bill gets radically saved. God intervenes in his life. He believes the gospel and the transformation is absolutely noticeable. There is a change that has come to Bill. 
And he's come to understand that all those years of working with Sheldon have not been right. He has not done right by Sheldon. And so he now feels compelled by the gospel to ask for Sheldon's forgiveness and to be reconciled to his brother in Christ. And so Bill is, again, saved. He knows I'm Sheldon's pastor. And so on a Friday afternoon, he comes to me and he says, you know, Pastor, I, I really want to be reconciled to Sheldon. Can you give me some counsel as to how I should go about seeking his forgiveness and how I should be reconciled with him? And so we talk and I, I give him some direction. I tell him on Monday morning, you need to meet with Sheldon when you first get to the office and you need to, to talk about these things. You need to, to ask for his forgiveness. You need to list out what you've done wrong. You need to, to, to tell him that you've been changed. You've been converted. You've been saved. You want to honor God and you, you are feel compelled now because you live in a spiritual brotherhood that, that, you, that you need to be reconciled to him. And so I give him all this counsel on a Friday and I, I offer, I say, you know what, I'll, I'll talk to Sheldon and, and kind of prepare him for this meeting you're going to have on Monday and give him some godly counsel as to how to receive you. All right, so, so Bill goes away. We come to Sunday morning and I, I stand up here in the pulpit. And I open the Bible to preach and we preach on the theme of loving one another. But the entire sermon is me talking to Sheldon. And it's explaining Sheldon the situation of, of how Bill did not know the Lord and how Bill just simply tried to undermine everything that Sheldon did. He was out to, to hurt him and poison all his relationships and keep him from advancing in his job. But he had come now to faith in Christ and he was changed. And although I can't look in the heart, it seems that from what Bill is telling me and from what little I know about his life and from his desires to do what is in God's word, that he wants to be reconciled. And so in the context of the Sunday morning sermon, I'm explaining all this and I'm giving Sheldon godly counsel from the pulpit. Sheldon, here's what you need to do. Bill's going to come to you tomorrow. He's going to sit down with you. He is going to ask for your forgiveness. He's going to list out all of the ways he's wronged you. And you need to forgive him. And you need to be reconciled to him. And these are the things you need to do to try to build that relationship together. And the whole Sunday morning sermon is me talking to Sheldon. It's not meant for anybody else, but I'm just talking to Sheldon. Now, what do you think is going to happen after service that Sunday morning? I mean, I could have talked to him at the door. But what do you think would have happened? What do you think would happen if I, if I were to do that? If I were to, to focus the whole sermon just on Sheldon's situation? Well, after the service, Adam's going to go to Sheldon and say, man, I just want to encourage you. It's going to be really hard, I know, for you to do what the pastor's told you to do, but I just want to encourage you. I want you to know I'm standing behind you. I love you. And then, and then Tom comes up to Sheldon and says, you know what, Sheldon, that's got to be a difficult situation. And I know you want to honor the Lord. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you the rest of the day. I'm going to pray for you tomorrow. I'm going to fast on your behalf. And I'm just going to pray that God uses that situation to bring reconciliation. And then Alan comes up to Sheldon and says, you know what, Sheldon, I, I, you know I've worked in state government for many, many years. I've been through this kind of situation before. I've had these kind of experiences. And this is what, what's helped me as I've walked through those. Here's, here's some counsel. If you want to sit down and talk about this this afternoon and talk about maybe how you're feeling, how you're wrestling with this, and how you should approach this situation, I'll be happy to do that. Whatever way I can, I can help out. And so, so, so Sheldon then leaves. Church is over. Sheldon leaves. We all leave. We're all dismissed. And then we all come to, to men's group on Tuesday morning. And here comes Sheldon. And, and we go through our and afterwards, you know, Jeff and Gordon and John go up to Sheldon and say, well, how'd that, how'd it go yesterday? How'd that conversation with, with Bill go? I, I was praying for you. I was, was, was hoping that everything would work out okay. And then Sheldon comes back on Wednesday night for prayer meeting. And we're all sitting down for prayer meeting and we're sharing requests. And, and, and Wade asks, well, how'd that go with Sheldon? Uh, Sheldon, how'd that go with you with that conversation with Bill on Monday? Now, what's going to happen now? Certainly, I've put some pastoral pressure on, on Sheldon. As I'm thinking about it, this might not be a bad way to exercise some pastoral ministry, right? 
But that's not my goal. My goal is not to put pressure on Sheldon. My goal is to encourage him and to put it before the entire body to help, walk, help Sheldon walk through this situation. To link arms with him and say, we're with you, brother. We're going to encourage you and we're going to pray for you. Here's counsel. Here's what's helped me. If, we're going to hold you accountable to this. We know that this is what God would have for you to do. This is what, what we know God would have for all. In fact, the, the, the consequence also is now we're all on the spot. Because we too might also at some point have some situation where we also have to walk through this and we realize that we need one another. I'm teaching the congregation by, by focusing on Sheldon in this particular aspect, right? I, I think that that's, what, that's a similar thing to what Paul is doing here. Paul is not trying to apply pastoral pressure to Philemon. He's simply encouraging the church to walk with Philemon in this situation. Fellowship is a community project. It's a communal project. Fellowship propels us to live in greater faithfulness to Christ as the body brings all of its virtues, all of its energy, all of its gifts to bear on the personal lives of each member. Paul here rallies the body of Christ to enter into Philemon's situation and walk with him to find a resolution because they love Philemon. They love his family. They love Onesimus. They love Paul, and they love the church. So Paul is not just simply inviting the church to participate in this matter. He is demanding them to participate. So the theme of fellowship here is, is also seen in this, this corporate dynamic in these first few verses. We also see in just the first couple of verses here the love that is shared among believers. It's love that, that binds believers together as one body in Christ. Paul refers to Philemon as as our beloved fellow worker. And that word beloved means dearly loved. There's a deep affection there. Paul has for Philemon. He dearly loves him. That deep love, that deep sense of affection is rooted in the shared fellowship that they have in the gospel. Love binds them together as, as brothers, as, as fellow workers. In fact, Paul is not just simply speaking this about Philemon, back in, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7, 9, and 14, he said the same thing about Tychicus, Onesimus, and Luke. They're all beloved. They're deeply loved. There's a deep sense of affection that we have for one another. Love characterizes Christian fellowship. And we also see that love even more implicitly in verse 2 as Philemon hosts the church, right? Philemon must love the church because the church meets in his house. Philemon is able to make whatever sacrifice is required as the church gathers there for worship and for teaching, for ministry to the saints, especially to those who are in need, for prayer, and certainly for fellowship. So this act of Philemon hosting the church here is an expression of his love for the church. So Paul here is laying, is, there's nothing here mentioned about fellowship, but Paul is infusing this very common standard form of a letter to set the table, to set the stage for why Philemon should act as he should. There is a fellowship. There's a commonality. There's a participation and a partnership that we experience as the body of Christ in the gospel. I wonder if we can think about fellowship in the same way. Do we see the church as our new family? Do we see it as a spiritual brotherhood? Do we see are the church as fellow co-laborers, co as, as fellow soldiers fighting a common spiritual enemy? 
Do we see ourselves as isolated followers of Christ, navigating through this life dependent only upon the Lord, upon the Lord and ourselves? Excuse me. <clears throat> or do we see our lives as part of a shared corporate life? Are we quick to speak in we and us and our and y'all, or merely in me, myself, and I? Do we love the body of Christ? Do we dearly love the people that are sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you? Is your love for others in this church characterized as being sacrificial? If we're going to experience the kind of love that God intends for us, we need to ask ourselves these hard questions. And if these things are true, then we need to ask ourselves how we can participate in this kind of life together. So Paul here sets the table. He lays the foundation. He is drawing attention to the reality of, of Christian community, of, of Christian fellowship among the body of Christ. And that, that theme carries over into the next section of the letter, verses 4 through 7, which is called the Thanksgiving section. Roman letters often supplied a brief prayer or a wish, usually for those uh, the recipient's health or prosperity or favorable life circumstances. And Paul Use again, uses the same format, but he Christianizes this aspect of the letter. He gives thanks to God. So this, the Thanksgiving section is composed of two parts, breaks down into two parts. In verses four and five is the Thanksgiving proper, where Paul is simply giving thanks to God for Philemon. And then in verses six and seven, he shifts his attention in offering a prayer for Philemon. So how is it that this Thanksgiving and this prayer further our understanding of Christian fellowship? I think it's important to see that Christian fellowship is predicated upon our faith in Christ and our love for the saints. We see that particularly in verse 5. In verse 4, Paul thanks God when he prays for Philemon, but he gives us the basis of his thankfulness in verse 5 when he says, I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. So, Paul here is thanking, thanking God for Philemon's faith in Christ and his love for the saints. That fellowship that they share together is forged. We didn't talk about it in verse 3, but the grace and the peace. God's manifestation of grace and peace in the life of Philemon and the life of Aphia and the life of Archippus and the life of the church forges together a fellowship, a shared existence in Christ. God here has manifested to believers grace and peace that makes them one body through the gospel. Paul commends Philemon for his faith in Christ. And again, in verse 5, Philemon is trusting Christ for salvation. Philemon has repented of his sins and he is resting upon the sacrificial death of Christ as the payment for his sins. Philemon believes in the resurrection of Christ that gives him life and hope. It's through the Holy Spirit now that Philemon has reoriented his life in a Godward direction. He trusts in Christ and that trust does something to how he lives. He is living out now a sense of faithfulness and obedience to God because of the change that Jesus has made in his life. But Paul also commends Philemon for his love for the saints. Again, as we just talked about a moment ago, it's the love that others have in the Christian community that, is, that exists because of the grace and peace that we have received from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A new love for Christ coincides with a new love for others in the church. I can't say, and John 
First John bears this out. I can't say that I love God and not love you. If I love God, I must also love you. And the evidence that I love God is that I love you. That is the evidence of it. That's the, that's the change. That signals a transformation. A new love for Christ coincides with a new love for others. And that love, again, is not merely intellectual or emotional, but it is practical. It is tangible. It is expressed in sacrificial and selfless works for others. So Philemon's love here is, is active. It's expressive. It leads to certain benefits. It leads to benevolence toward others in the body. And Paul here also summarizes that the fellowship that Christians share then is rooted in the gospel. That this, that this love that we have comes because we indeed are trusting in Christ. There is a mutual faith that we all possess because we trust in Christ. And that trust then manifests itself in faithfulness. Faithfulness to God. And faithfulness to God means that we will live according to His commandments. We will love one another. And that love, again, reflects Christ's love for us. So Philemon's participation here in the fellowship should lead him to obey Christ and love the saints in all things, especially in what Paul is about to ask Philemon to do. So Christian fellowship is predicated upon our faith in Christ and our love for the saints. Christian fellowship also leads us to know and to do God's will. And that's what we see in verse 6, where Paul prays for Philemon. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So after thanking God for Philemon's faith and love, he now prays for Philemon, particularly that that fruit of his faith in Christ and his love for the body will will continue to be manifested in that fellowship, that it will lead Philemon to know and to do God's will. So verse 6 is the key verse of this letter. It's a mouthful in English, and it's even more complicated in Greek. So what I want to do is walk step by step through this verse and then kind of put it back together in the end. The key word in this key verse is the word that's translated as as sharing in the ESV. I pray that the sharing of your faith. In Greek, the word is koinonia. You may have heard that Greek word before. Maybe it would be one of the few words that you, you know in the Greek language. That word koinonia kind of has a wide variety of meaning. At the heart of koinonia is this sense of, of commonality, something that is held in common by a group of people. So, for example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, Luke says about the early church that all who believed were together and had all things in common. They had all things in koinonia. In koinonia, something is shared by the group that is then common to all. So Luke's comment, in Luke's comment about the early church, the church was bound together by their common sharing of Christ, and that common sharing of Christ led them to share their possessions with one another, so that what belonged to one was common to all. So koinonia involves commonality, sharing, participation, partnership, oneness. The word is typically translated as fellowship because the believers share their lives together as fellows they share their lives together as comrades as bosom buddies why because they hold christ in common they participate together in christ and so they form a partnership they form a fellowship they form a oneness 
as the body of Christ. Paul wants Philemon to understand that he participates in a fellowship centered around the gospel and expressed in a mutual sharing of Christ whom they all hold in common. Now, that fellowship is formed by what? Faith. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith, or the fellowship that is produced by faith, or the fellowship that results from faith. In other words, we have faith in Christ, and that faith in Christ forges a fellowship amongst us. It puts us in a fellowship, and it strengthens the bonds of fellowship with other believers. And again, the basis of our fellowship is the gospel. It's our faith in Christ. That faith joins us to other believers who are also trusting in Christ. So then Paul prays that the, that the fellowship that is produced by faith then would become effective. That it would do something. In fact, the word effective there is the Greek word energes or energes, which is where we get our word energy from. Our fellowship leads us to be energetic. It leads us to do something. It, this word connotes a sense of activity, of movement, of production. So Philemon's participation in the body produces this, this sense of doing something. It creates something. There's an energetic quality to it. There's a powerful effect. It's not passive. Fellowship is something that happens in us, does something to us, and therefore has an effect on the rest of the body. And what is that effect? Well, Paul says that effect is the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So fellowship, what does it do? It helps us know God more deeply. It leads us to a full knowledge of God, a deeper knowledge, a greater understanding of God. So this knowledge that Paul is talking about here is not an esoteric knowledge. It's not merely an intellectual knowledge. In fact, the word knowledge is the same word used multiple times in the book of Colossians to speak of an experiential knowledge, a practical knowledge, a knowledge gained by walking in Christ. So as we walk in Christ, we participate in the fellowship of the saints, and the life that we share together as a church leads us to a deeper knowledge of God. So do you see the church in that way? Do you see the church as helping you to grow in greater faithfulness to Christ? Do you see the church helping you to press deeper into the relationship that we have in Christ? Our brothers and sisters in Christ encourage us to know God more deeply. They push us to know God more deeply. And they keep us accountable so that we keep growing more deeply in our knowledge of God. Again, that knowledge is practical. The knowledge of God, the knowledge of His will leads us to do God's will. To live in conformity with the character of God. To participate in the mission of God. Or as Paul says, the full knowledge of God leads us into every good thing. And that phrase, every good thing, simply refers broadly to all of the good that Christians are called to do. The knowledge of God that comes by participating in the fellowship of the saints leads us to obey God faithfully and do all the good that God desires us to do. God uses fellowship to spur us on, as Hebrews says, to love one another and to do good deeds. So fellowship helps us to obey God and to do the good that God desires for us. It leads us. Fellowship leads us to delight God, to bring joy and pleasure to God, as well as to help us to delight in God, to find our joy in Him. So when we fail to share in the fellowship of the saints, we miss out on all the good that God intends for us. 
to all the good that we do, all the good that we are able to do by the participation in the fellowship, Paul says, is for the sake of Christ. It is for his glory. It is for his mission. It is for his body. So I like how Douglas Moo, one of the New Testament scholars on this book, kind of pieces all this back together. He paraphrases the verse in this way. It says, Philemon, I am praying that the mutual participation in the fellowship of the saints that arises from your faith in Christ might become effective in leading you to understand and put into practice all the good that God wills for us and that is found in our community and do all this for the sake of Christ. That would be a good prayer to pray for somebody else. It would be a good prayer to pray for yourself. That we would participate in the fellowship so that we are pressing more deeply into the knowledge of God and the will of God to do it. So we're living out the full reality of what God intends us to do and to be as Christians in this world. And the effect of that is that not only will we please God, but we'll also delight in Him. We'll experience His joy. And that's clearly what's happening in Philemon's life because Paul commends Philemon in verse 7 for the fruit of fellowship in his life. So does your participate in the fellowship energize you? Does it lead you to a better understanding of God's will? Does it empower you to do God's will? Does, it, does Christian fellowship lead you to do all the good that God intends for you to do? Or the lack of these things in your life due to a failure to share in the fellowship of the saints? Last thing that we can discern about fellowship here is that fellowship is important for no other reason that it refreshes us. Christian fellowship refreshes us. Do you see what Paul commends here about Philemon in verse 7? He says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So Philemon's participation here in the fellowship of the saints and the fellowship of the church has produced within himself a deep love for the church and that love has led him to refresh the saints. The word refresh there points to the fact that Philemon has, has heartened the church. He has encouraged the saints. He has, he has edified them. He has invigorated them. He has buoyed them up. He has lifted them up. God has used Philemon's love for the church to bring transformation and power to the saints so that they live with joy and with passion, so that they will continue walking in Christ and pursuing the sanctification that he is working out in them. It's that practical demonstration of love then that is borne out in his participation in the fellowship that Paul commends. Paul says it brings me joy. It comforts me or it encourages me. Paul is encouraged. He is satisfied that God is using Philemon to do his sanctifying work in the lives of all the saints, which again is God's purpose for all people. That was Paul's mission to go and declare the gospel and to build up Christians to help sanctify them. And Paul is so encouraged. He is so himself refreshed. He is so overjoyed that Philemon is doing this primarily because he has been buoyed up by the fellowship of his church. His great love for them, then, is expressed as he buoys them up. This is exactly what Christian fellowship does. Faith in Christ leads us to deep, transformative, sustaining relationships with other believers that produce a deeper, bolder, stronger love for them that in turn refreshes them. That refreshment 
is, is experienced in encouraging them. When we refresh the hearts of believers, we encourage them, we invigorate them, we buoy them up, we help to press them deeper into a relationship with Jesus and His sanctifying work in their lives. So the fellowship of the saints is the chilled glass of iced tea after hours of yard work in the hot summer sun. The body of Christ is the weekend at the beach after a week of demanding work. The fellowship of the saints is a week of cool, crisp, North Carolina mountain air at sunrise and sunset after months of the oppressive heat and humidity of a Tallahassee summer. That is God's grace to you. The fellowship is God's grace to you. That is God's provision for you. God saved you to be part of the fellowship. And that is how God is providing for your spiritual refreshment and flourishing. In Luke's summary of the state of the early church after Pentecost, he reports in Acts 2.42 that the believers gathering together as a church devoted themselves to the fellowship. And so should we. May our mutual participation in the fellowship of the saints that arises from our faith in Christ be effective in leading us to understand and put into practice all the good that God wills us to do for the sake of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this treasure in the New Testament. Scholars have wondered why for generations as to why this book is even in the canon. And yet, Lord, the more that we press deeply into this, we see it's not just its helpful message, Lord, but its necessary message as to the vital function of biblical fellowship, Lord. We need it. You created us, Lord, not to be alone. You created us to live in community with other people, first in family and then in the church. And now, Lord, as we live in this new spiritual family, we ask that you would use the body to be a source of refreshment for us. Lord, help us to receive from the body. Help us to glean all of your grace. Help us to, 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 to gain all of our provision from what you would give to us through the body of Christ. And God, may we ourselves contribute as we all share together. We all hold Christ in common. Help us, Lord, to each contribute out of the basis of our love, out of the basis of our faith in Christ, to the nurturing and to the building up and to the encouraging and to the invigorating of one another, Lord, so that we will continue to walk faithfully all the way to the very end, that we will come to the end and we will inherit the great inheritance that has been reserved for us in Christ, that we will not fall away, that your sanctifying work will have been accomplished in us, Lord, all for your glory, so that we can receive all that you would have for us, all of the blessing, all of the benefit that you have destined for us. Lord, may we experience that. We pray that we would avail ourselves of the fellowship and thank you for giving us this source of grace, this means of grace into our lives, so that we might be made complete in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.